0: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health
1: insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare Short-Term Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, I'm Michael Chakraverti. And I'm Mark Watson. And this is the Mankind Podcast. We're going to take a deep dive into masculinity, exploring what being a man actually means, along with a variety of brilliant guests.
2: You know, men talking about men is a notoriously underrepresented area of podcasting. Not anymore. thought it would start. It's hard,
1: isn't it? <laughs> How about high? Oh, that was very like. that's an ASMR. Hi, hi. It's Michael here. Welcome to the show. Oh, we can use that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Nobody right. told us how difficult it was to begin a podcast, but it turns <laughs> out <laughs> out it's, it's absolutely unbearable. Almost, maybe we'll just all go out of the room and <laughs> come, come back, back in. in. Again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So
1: this week we have Riyadh Khalaf with us. Hello, Riyadh. Hi, how are you? Can you tell me who you are,
3: please? I am an Irish-Iraqi broadcaster... Uh, podcaster, YouTuber and author. And apparently unsure about all of those things. Yeah, it's that weird thing of like millennial n- needing to do everything because the one job doesn't necessarily pay enough or yeah. is stable enough. <laughs> so I, yeah, I'm a jack of all trades, master of none and absolutely delighted with the setup. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and also winner of Celebrity chef.
3: Yeah, that's the new one. That's a bit mad, isn't it? Add it to the list. So that happened a few months ago and I had to keep it an absolute secret for... Ooh, the, the gods of six months.
2: never really occurred to me that, that you, you're walking around knowing you're a Master's Health champion and you're yeah. a god among men, but people just <laughs> <look at> you...
3: <laughs> Thank you, a god amongst men! Yeah, yeah,
2: but a secret god for six months. People just looking at you like a normal guy. When yeah, you you're know walking around down. like Billy Big Bollocks, like, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> People are looking at you like just Simon Small Bollocks. Going, yeah. God, but what you, a secret. It is
3: a weird thing, because we filmed the final... And I won three days before the UK went into lockdown. So everyone else was like, no, life is over. And I'm like, eh, yeah. You know. Just you wait
2: till you see my pies. Yeah, this
3: big thing happened. So actually, having that in sort of the back of my head, knowing it was coming up, not just winning it, but the series in general was a really lovely motivation to just stay.
2: Alive. Yeah, what a fantastic bit of time. All the rest of us were watching our careers cease to exist and fall (laughs) apart. And you knew you were about to be launched to extra stardom. Well, let me just say that my career did
3: die for a while during it too. But (laughs) thankfully, that uh, MasterChef coin just about kept me going. (laughs)
1: God of all men, though, I like that. That should be on your CV, I think. We had Kyle. Kind of like God
2: of all men. I'll take it. Oh, I think I said God among men. God of all men is a big, big clamor's next. Yeah, so that is the almighty, basically. One is, God. You, know. you are one of the gods, but not the I God. am atheist, though. So
1: maybe
3: this is actually going against who I am. As Would you believe in God if you were God, though? Tricky one, isn't it? Maybe I don't believe in him because you are I Him. Am. This it has gone really it. weird. Yeah, it's not what we expected to be talking it. about. It wasn't but that's where so I was going for for the first question, <laughs> but I'm loving it. Um, for the first
1: question, as I have for you... When was the first time you realised that masculinity existed and was
3: like a thing for you? I think it was when I realised that there was this external societal pressure for me to not be who I naturally was. Mm. And what I mean by that is a sort of a collective bunch of small little microaggressions that little baby Riyadh was experiencing and hating every minute of. Mm. Example, mom, I want a Barbie. Christmas Day (laughs) arrives have a fucking action man That's not a Barbie No at all And let me tell you He had lovely packs A great six pack But you know I wasn't really feeling it I
2: So It's was really
1: weird When you took the trousers off It was always Nothing these, there yeah um, A not,
3: eunuch Obviously gay people Immediately
1: have a
2: quick <laughs> look <laughs> yeah. I like the fact that you say When you took the trousers off As if it was a sort of <laughs> yeah. Obvious first step Yeah like yeah. everyone does
3: that I, I <laughs> never did that I don't, You're absolutely <laughs> disgusting uh, So I had this Maternal Fabulosity
2: Within me And you were very young at this point
3: Point. Yeah, like probably seven, eight, nine. Yeah. Mm. Um, so that was one that I was like, hmm, how come I can't have it? Oh, because boys don't play with things like that. And who told you that? Or where did you learn that from? It think? was just no matter how hard I asked and how much I cried and begged, <laughs> it just wasn't working. But in every other aspect of my life, crying and begging did work. <laughs> you want the chocolate bar? You cry and you beg. You want to go to bed later? You cry and yeah, you beg. Yeah, we all know how it works, don't right? We? Exactly, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And your manipulation of the parent. Yeah. <laughs> but then... Other things began to happen as I got older. So, you know, people in school, why are you playing with the girls and not with the boys? Why are you not playing football? And it's just all the natural things that I didn't have an inclination for. I was being questioned upon constantly and very quickly and very, you know, at a very young age, I had to find ways of being agile to try and bat away all of the questions and how to, to live in this really, really uncomfortable world that didn't seem to align with who I was. So football
1: is a thing <laughs> for gay yeah. people quite a lot of the time. I remember when I was younger, I, I played a goal post. I wasn't allowed oh. to participate. There was a jumper and me and every so often
2: I was allowed to like shout a distracting word when the I think the opposition Relegation!
0: <laughs> <laughs> Offside!
2: That is rough. I mean, quite often you put the the bad guy in goal but to make them be the goal is an, another... Bad do, guy, like, Mark. Yeah. That's What are you trying to say? <laughs> so, I'm trying to say that if you don't like football there's something intrinsically evil about you, Michael. <laughs> it's interesting for me this because um, I'm sort of on the other side of it. I, I grew up You know, as a straight kid, and also I loved football. And if there were boys that didn't want to join in, you—you never once thought that there might be. Uh, any more overarching reason than they just weren't very good at football. But I also wasn't very good at football and still liked it. I don't think I was ever cruel to people because they didn't want to join in, but that... Thank you. That <laughs> culture. Well, well, it was never it was too many
3: who were the other way. Right? I can yeah.
2: remember it vividly now. I can remember what... Like how football, which is a thing that I've always loved, was used as like a stick to beat non-conformist boys And you said you acted with.
3: kind of agile. What were your like techniques of escaping the football and not being a goal oh, I had many. It would be... And it's so funny to think that as a young kid, a lot of young queer people have this in them. Mm. Um, and they. I think as you get into adulthood, you use that uh, chameleon skill to become amazing at your career an, an incredible communicator, full of empathy, all these things. I would uh, place myself geographically quite far away from the lads. Well, as far away as physically possible. I wasn't in shot. Right. I would make sure that I was the most fun, the most entertaining person to the girls and sort of align myself with them in a way where they would be my sort of girly wall of protection. And... Yeah, like kind of be one of them, but not be one of them. Because you didn't want to sort of raise any eyebrows, but you just wanted people to know that, well, that's just what Riyadh does. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But it's interesting that as a child, there was already the boys are doing this, the girls are doing this. And because I don't like what the boys are doing, I therefore have to go to do what the girls are doing. Yeah.
3: And you're constantly thinking in your head, but why do I do this? Why am I so drawn to that and not to that? This is how deep the trauma is in terms of football, right? The other day, walking across Clapham Common with my fella, and a ball lands in front of us.
1: Oh, that gets me, like, chill.
2: Oh, I love it. Oh, <laughs> oh, it's horrible. If I get a chance to boot one back, I'm, I'm actively well, that's looking the, for it.
3: The booting back is the worst part, Mark. This
1: what if it. you kick it wrong, and then they call you a... Yeah, in yeah, that moment, you're a kid again. It's
2: incredible. These are pressures which would just... Uh, I'm the opposite. of. Once on holiday, I saw this family playing cricket, and kid hit the ball towards me and I caught it and like celebrated and everything I I'd actively no, I caught the ball I would be thrilled
1: because I would be like look how masculine I am guys look how good at sporting I am this is sport <laughs> <laughs>
2: it's really interesting to me because you know I, again I've been going to football all my life really I was taken to football as a kid I play football and despite not being a sort of a lad at all despite being not traditionally masculine in that sense I've never really experienced the atmosphere of a football match as being like full of threat or full of toxic masculinity in in a way that it obviously clearly is. But then I've got a kid, and uh, taking my own children, I did think for the first time what sort of potential pressures are building in the child's mind as a result of this, what kind of influence. So this this is really interesting for me to hear. Because I love football and I'm kind of known football fan, I'm always trying to kind of... Advocate for it to people that don't like and try and make it more inclusive and try and strip away all the kind of ladish baggage around it. Because I hate that because I want it to be for everyone. Mm. And I, I'm a sort of nerd about it. I don't like it because it's like a boy's thing. But um, nonetheless, I've never really thought about what it would be like for it to be a, yeah, like a threat hanging over you.
3: Yeah, or like a, a tool of fear. Yeah. That's... So the other day when the ball landed in front of us. The two of fear came into flying effect for both my boyfriend and I. And we'd never really spoken about how football was really shit for us. Yeah. And we both simultaneously, without even taking a beat, looked away <laughs> in opposite <laughs> directions. If we don't see it, the ball doesn't see us. And neither do the people who own it. And we just hear from behind us, hey, hey, pass boy, can you just kick it back, yeah? And I was like, oh, <laughs> I was like Josh just go ahead and he goes what no you do it no you do it and I can't imagine what it looked like we're having an argument with this ball in front of Can us Can we a get base. it
2: couriered maybe or... <laughs> yeah,
3: yes. I'm sending an Addy Lee <laughs> <laughs> other couriers are available um, anyway I was like this is it and everything just went into slow motion the peripheral vision went dark I had a vignette mm. and the ball was in the centre of it and I just slowly sort of made my way towards it looked at my target took a deep breath Brought my right leg back. I don't know why because I think I'm left footed. (laughs) And I kicked it. It went straight. Yeah. It landed in front of the guy. Oh brilliant. And I just, I walked away and I thought, well, is this a full circle is this like have I just closed the book on the football fear you have wasted your talent
2: is what you've done
3: I could have been someone
2: yeah uh, I I saw your brain trying to think of like a famous professional (laughs) footballer I could have been Maradona all these careers that we reeled off at the start but the big elephant in the room is you should have been a footballer just like the kids at school said this is it actually there's not many openly gay footballers and I wonder whether
1: there's definitely some sort of inherent homophobia or perhaps it is literally just that young queer kids were just so scared of it I think,
2: though, that the football community is sort of collectively waiting for Mm. people to come out in what is an incredibly difficult environment to do. Obviously, I think there's an awareness within the... The the game of football has done a lot of work on homophobia and stuff for the past maybe 10 years, Mm. and there is this kind of collective awareness that it would be really helpful if... Because there undeniably must be gay football, even at the top level. There are some out-gay footballers in other countries and at lower levels of football in this country but there's been no like big star. major fig head yet. but and anyone the, the, who does come out
1: then needs to be prepared for some quite horrible torrents of abuse potentially that's
2: the thing it's an awful lot to ask of somebody there's you know this guy, Gareth Thomas a rugby player came yes, out and, Welsh and, and, one yeah, he, yeah and he you know became an uh, astonishing kind of like leading light for a community within again quite a masculine sport but that again is it's not something everyone wants for themselves, probably not if you're 23 and you're trying to... But you've dealt with quite a lot of online abuse for being openly... For as long as I've been stalking you on the internet, you
1: have been... You're part of, <laughs> you're part of the gay, problem, Michael. I'm part of the problem. <laughs> <laughs> but like, how how do you deal with that? Because a lot of that kind mm. of abuse comes from people who I think personally see queer people as against masculinity. They're not masculine enough. There's a whole thing about being masculine enough. Yeah,
3: it? I think a lot of... People that you know do the trolling online have do the trolling do the trolling <laughs> the hobby. It's there's a myriad of reasons. I think one of them is yes, you know they're just afraid of the unknown. They haven't been exposed to how lovely it is to be around queer people, work with them, have them as friends, and potentially some of them as well are yeah you know LGBTQ plus and what they see in you is the worst and most scary part of themselves, they believe. I was going to ask about that. So they're triggered by it, you know. That's
2: interesting to me as a straight person because you often hear that idea that homophobia comes from a kind of terror of one's own. But I I never know if that is a thing or just a sort of like a, a folk myth that goes around.
3: I couldn't stand growing up. Uh, Lily Savage. What's the his... Actual Paul Paul O'Grady. Paul, O'Grady. Paul
1: McCartney there. Not Paul McCartney. McCartney's done a drag act. Nah. <laughs> Not yet. That we know of. <laughs> Let's
3: get on it. Uh, He's done most things to be fair. <laughs> so I would see Paul O'Grady on the TV growing up as Lily and as Paul. And I would see my parents laugh at him and sort of be entertained by him. And you would think that that would make me feel calm and relaxed. But actually, I was seeing this before I even fully knew what or who I was. I didn't understand what it was to be a gay person. Mm. So I just thought, uh-oh, I'm a bit like him and I'm afraid of it. And Because I saw people laughing at him, not with him. Yeah,
2: Yeah, that must be. And most of the gay people we saw on TV, I mean, you're younger than me, but like my parents' generation, your parents' generation it was a very, very performative type of gayness, right? It
3: was kind of, yeah, let's camp it up. Let's make it uber flamboyant. It's kind of sideshow. It's light relief. It's humour. Uh, they're never really going to be the main act and they're never going to have a multi-dimensional personality. Mm. So there's never any kind of element about them that has emotion or passion or, you, you know, desires in life outside of this show that they're on. But I I didn't realise at the time that actually, you know, this is a person who is booked and blessed yeah. and getting money and as a professional and a great human being, I just had a wall of fear and terror. And I, it's funny now that I, when I see Paul, I think what an amazing, brave, mm. incredible person yeah. he was to do that Because you have then. context for it now. But to survive as a gay man back then in the public eye, you had to be a clown. Yeah. To bat away the hate, you had to make people laugh. And that was something that I learned very quickly in school post footballness when I got into secondary school I need to be a punching bag you know figuratively um, a class clown to kind of make them forget that I'm a target to be hurt
1: Yeah I think there's an interesting thing as well that you're talking about with people like Paul O'Grady is that a lot of the time people we see on television who are gay in order to make them feel less Threatening, perhaps, is that they perform a sort of femininity quite a lot of the mm. time. But I think that's almost the way I do it myself, is I camp myself up so that I'm less threatening. And I think that's what we all can do. But I'm really interested in when you're sat in your living room and the annual EastEnders gay kiss comes on. Mm. <laughs> your mum and dad are sat on the other
3: sofa and you're sat on the chair. Like, what happens to, like, secondary school Riyadh in his head? Like, what does he do? You feel your skin crawling, not because you're disgusted by what you're seeing, but because you're mortified that a moment of same sex affection is being witnessed by the two people that don't know your big, dark secret and you're just hanging on every word or beat. Will they flinch? Will they squint their eyes? Will they look away? Are they going to say something nasty? Because anything that they do that's beyond just sitting there and plainly looking at the screen, I'm hyper focused on and ready to
2: feel it and feel hurt. You wrote a book, you know, for maybe the uh, modern equivalents of those 15-year-old you. Do you think it's easier for those, like, is there more of a variety of Positive gay identity role model, you know. Oh yeah. Is it easier? It must be. It must be easier than it was, like in the nineties, for example. Mm, it's
3: funny because I get that question a lot, and I think it's easier in many ways in terms of you know people like you know Michael, who is an amazing positive role model. Oh, stop who it. Is, <laughs> you, know, you are. You're super accessible online. You, you know, people can see your story. They can see that you aren't a you know, performative gay person. You're just a guy who happens to be gay. And is good Who has many stuff. passions outside of liking
2: fellas. You know? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think that when we were growing up, there were many people who were just, oh, he's also gay. It, yeah, it had to be the core fact. Extra, yeah. Which I love. Yeah. It's just, mm-hmm. You know, it's just part of it.
3: So that's a great thing. Loads of, you know, books like mine out there, loads of YouTube videos. But loads your of... book
1: is the best book of them all, right? Oh, well,
3: <laughs> you know what? I will say that, when I started writing it, I thought, how do I make this stand on its own? Because there are other amazing books out yeah. there, like, uh, you know, Juno Dawson has a great book and, um, you know, Matthew Todd and Alan Downs. Those last two are probably for older audiences. But I thought this has to be just its own thing. And I'm really proud that now when I look back on it, you know, a year or so later I, and I flick through the pages, I think that this is very, very specific. It's pulling from real lived experience from my point of view. And, you know, yeah, I just think it's great. And it's pretty as well. It's got loads of nice pictures. We had a great illustrator working on it. So all of the sort of difficult things to understand as a young person, like consent and STIs and coming out are kind of um, not just spoken about in my writing, but also in a really nice visual way. And there's way. a
1: chapter in your book written by your parents, Yeah, which I know you've talked about quite a lot. And your parents are genuinely incredible. And I love... The relationship you have with them. But there was a really interesting thing you've talked about with your father and about what his ideas of what young Riyadh would or could be and specifically how he viewed masculinity and I guess perhaps you as a threat to that.
3: Yeah, it's a funny one because I, I always try and get into his head back then, you know, pre me coming out. My dad is the most amazing, loving, caring, sensitive man. But he is also very, very manly. <laughs> in many ways, in his interests and stuff like that, and um, football, a bit, a bit, yeah, not hugely, but just you know, he grew up in a really tough time, you know, under Saddam Hussein's regime I was gonna in, in ask Iraq. About this.
2: this is fascinating. The fact that yeah, you know, on he, top of he was everything a refugee, else. You yeah, know, he
3: fled, um, and we can get into it, you know, a bit more later. But essentially, I had this fear about how he would take having me as a son as a gay person, but. He knew that I had these, you know, interests in nature and aviation and and pretty things and and comedy and show business. And he just saw all of this as just Riyadh is just a really, really different, original young child. He didn't think that Riyadh is going to come out.
2: And, you know, he found it difficult to begin with, really difficult, but... um, Did his background make it even harder to make that mental leap, do you think?
3: I think so, yeah. I think he grew up in a world where, you know, the gender roles are super, super defined. Right, yeah. You know, a man is like this, a woman is like that. That's the way it is. And, And I was coming in with this kind of, you know, I am a man, I'm proud to... I'd be a man. I'm. I'm comfortable in that, but I also really, really like men. Not as friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> more. And that kind of messed with his head. I think Dad's issue was more actually about what other people will think. Right. In, yeah. Of us as the Caliph clan, of you know his job as a father. Did he fail? Did he make me gay by mm. not instilling enough masculinity? And I think that was a genuine fear in his head. I'm sure it is. I you think know?
2: maybe part of what parents struggle with is the idea that. Uh, I mean, what people will say about it is such a core fear for yeah. not just parents, everyone, I suppose, but especially in the community. I don't know what it was like where you grew up, but there is this sense that if your son comes out, like uh, alarm bells will start sounding outside the house and, like people will be outside, like exactly. like in a movie where there's journalists camped on the... Exactly, you know, doorstepping. Doorstep. Doorstep. Yeah. Mm,
3: so what did you do to make him this way? But that's
1: a particularly interesting point, though, is you said that he hadn't given you enough masculinity somehow, therefore implying, I suppose, that being gay... Isn't therefore masculine. Which is bullshit. Which is bullshit. Which is a whole. Which
2: is bullshit. And yet, it definitely is a a pretty common assumption, I think. Like a a common thing that feeds homophobia must be the idea that being gay is in some way. There's an internalized homophobia as well, isn't there?
1: Especially within the gay male community is the no femme. So, no femme presenting men, no kind of camp
3: men, because they are masculine, they are mask only. And that's terrifying. And that femininity in any form is a weakness. So it's it it instantly sets masculinity as strong, desirable and the other one as weak and undesirable. Mm. And so you grow up in a world where you're kind of brainwashed into thinking that you are inherently the weak, undesirable thing. And then I, I don't know about you, Michael, but as I got older, the natural masculine traits of my personality that I never paid attention to began to present themselves. It was like an epiphany. It was like. Oh, I am just so naturally a hybrid of the two. And I absolutely love that. I've got my, you know, feminine sensibilities and ability to kind of connect with a, a more sensitive world and people in that way. But I also have these really <laughs> rugged, you know, things that I'm into, like big engines on airplanes and <laughs> kind of, you know, going camping and hill walks and shit like that. You know, they're going to present themselves in different ways in every person. But I just... Now at 29 years old, I can safely say I am so, so happy with how I have developed mm. and that I I have this kind of ability to see the brilliance in both.
2: And if there is such a thing as a, specifically masculine or feminine traits, you'd want a person to have both, right? A combination of those is surely Desirable, rather yeah. than someone being a hundred percent. Yeah,
3: absolutely. And actually, now I've gone even further beyond. Oh, that's a masculine interest, that's yeah. a feminine interest, and I just think that's a real interest mm. because I might go to you know the ramp at Heathrow Airport to look at a triple seven aircraft, and that's on the books, a masculine thing to do. But I might go, oh my god, isn't it gorgeous? <laughs> yeah, and I will bring my own very unique self to that plate. You know, mm. we're getting very deep here. No, it's good. But it I'm just, it's, 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 I'm figuring yeah. out as life goes on that, you know, these two words are complete bullshit and they're mm. so limiting.
2: Yeah, it's very interesting, really, because it's absolutely mad the idea that a plane is in some way more male than female as a thing or that anything is. If you actually step back from that assumption, is I've seen it. What we're told, but, um, machines are for boys. Yes. And yeah. pretty things are for girls um, from day dot. I've raised now, or helped to raise a boy and a girl and uh, I've seen how how quickly and insidiously those assumptions come in from from people who mean no harm by it, but they they really are hired, wired into us. But those tend to be older people than myself. And I find it very interesting that it feels as if the way things are going, in another 20 or 30 years, people will collectively reject the idea, or maybe, that anything is specifically for... Maybe it will take longer than that, but it feels like a real time of a revolution of thought in terms of those ideas, you know? It has to be a conscious... Thing It can't,
3: I think we'll get there quicker if we actively try to bash down those walls. So like at the moment, Virgin Atlantic, the airline, they've launched a campaign called See Her Fly. And it's essentially them actively reaching out saying, hey, girls, young girls, come and be an engineer. Come and be a pilot. Mm. Come and work in science, technology, engineering and mathematics. You don't have
2: to serve the champagne. Right. If you want to
3: fabulous. Go and do that. But there are all of these other roles that are open to you um, that society might say aren't, Mm, which is great. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood f.
1: And in terms of the revolution of thought, I just want to quickly come back to your dad. This man who previously looked upon being gay as perhaps not being the masculine figure that he wanted. And from where he's come from and where he is now as this staunch advocate for LGBTQ rights. Mm. Can we talk about that a wee bit?
3: Yeah, It, it was amazing for me to see a human being really drastically... Work hard, mm-hmm. first of all, and then change mm-hmm. yeah. um, and be not just...
2: And the work hard is important. Right? This is what exactly. you were saying. It, this, it, it doesn't, it doesn't just happen. happen. Yeah. yeah.
3: You've got to actively lean into being a person that wants good to happen. And I think he learned to love me as I am over time, which mm-hmm. was great. And then it went from just accepting me to being thrilled that I happened to be this way. Mm-hmm. And my parents now see my gayness as a gift. Because we collectively see it as this thing that was given to us by chance, not by a divine being, because we don't believe because in Because you that. are the divine being. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I forgot. Sorry, thank you for reminding me. If anything, you generated your own game. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we see it as this like thing that's given us the ability to explore the world, make friends globally, help hopefully people around the world, And just open our minds, you know, so when we go to the Pride Parade in London or Dublin or, you know, go to a gay bar in in West Hollywood as a family, because we do do things like that. We just look at each other and go, isn't this great? You know, and this is all coming from the chance, just the chance that I happen to be this way. Um, He now is active in terms of. On social media, he's always commenting, you know, if someone writes under a post of mine and they're like, Riyadh, I, I need some advice, I need some help with, the you know, coming out, he'll write to them. That's great. Or, or he'll, you know, chat to his lad friends and try to, you know, soften them a bit and, and win them over. So if you get Riyadh, you get the whole package, but you've got the whole team working for you. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a whole crew. So when he goes to Pride and he sees... The 17-year-old guy called Derek, who's at his first ever Pride, and he's really nervous. Oh, and yeah, Derek, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Lovely guy. <laughs> <laughs> he looks at him and he goes, that's basically my son. Yeah. And he gets teary and wants to give him
2: a hug. So, And, and that's, that that's why empathy is, isn't it, basically? Oh, like, I'm like
1: one massive goosebump. <laughs> yeah, me too. It's,
2: it's a wonderful. Like, And that's what we need the world to be like, people being able to see a person and as close as possible to directly experience their actual thoughts and emotions.
3: And and i just add as well, I think that recently I've learned why he had such an ability to slip from terrified and somewhat against Mm -hmm. me being gay to being the way he is now. And that is because he had this past lived experience and trauma of fleeing Iraq on false documents, Mm. coming to the UK and having his own experience of being re- maybe. rejected, yeah. othered and, and feeling like there was something about him that was not wanted. There was a huge amount of racism. He was turned down for jobs. People would make fun of his accent. He was just a complete outsider. So inherently, he knows what that feels like. So he has used that experience to help others, which is so admirable.
1: It's proper active allyship. And I think it's a common human experience, actually, is feeling othered and feeling isolated and lonely and people come across prejudice, whether it's because they're gay, whether because they're just not masculine enough, whether it's because of their race, because of their creed, because of their yeah. gender identity, anything. And then um, actually we should use that as the thing that binds us rather than Dividing us. I think a good
3: question for someone like me to ask would be. Um, Sorry, I've just realised you're left handed. Yes, I really am.
1: I love
2: yeah. that. So am I. There's not enough of us around. Uh, no,
1: well,
3: listen. Well, I feel it,
2: like I'm a minority in this room. This is horrible. Yeah,
3: <laughs> how does it feel? Alas. <laughs> I've been a
2: minority for nearly 45 minutes.
3: <laughs> and also that you're using a pencil, not a pen. And I know exactly why, because you don't
2: want a stained wrist. <laughs> I, I wish we'd bonded over this earlier. The like, it probably is worse for gay people growing up, but there's a lot of ignorance about left handers as well. <laughs> people don't understand how Thank we see. Sm- judge stuff. Yeah. Your hands hurt afterwards when you've... Did you, in exams, People did you always that have... think spawn of the devil. Oh, there's also the spawn of the devil stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's deep. It was funny. I was just going to ask you actually um, about being left-handed. Well, I was going to say like someone like me doesn't get other a lot. Like I represent a lot of the groups that basically get the power. Apart from now, I think about it, the left-handedness thing. So I suppose I have that as my struggle. <laughs> so what are good things that people like me can do to be actively allies and to aid a sort of change in society's thought? Great question. And I love that because it's not asked enough, is it? It's the sort of thing I want to know about myself. It just makes me happy when people ask it. Oh, glad, yeah. Well, it's a very left-handed question, I think. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. An original way of looking at the world. We're creative people. It's a very lefty
3: question. Um, (laughs) I think so many ways. And they're really, really easy. But the main thing to remember is they're everyday, Mm. small, little actions rather than, now, in this moment... I will be an ally. It's just about being aware that if one of your mates in the pub or at a football match accidentally or on purpose slips out oh, some fucking faggot or you know little pansy or whatever you challenge it. Challenge it. Yeah. Call them out in your own friendly bantery way just like why'd you say that? And actually just give them a moment of pause to go hmm why did I say it? Yeah. And just say like there's actually no need is there like mate? You know just because yeah. if I went into it I would probably be a bit too confrontational. <laughs> yeah. But you know how your friends communicate and how they listen. So use that to your advantage to win them over. I'm also a coward, so doing it in a non-confrontational <laughs> way sounds great. <laughs> to me, yeah. Do you want to Um <laughs> That's one thing. Confront it, but in your own unique yeah, way. That's a really
2: good tip. Um, yeah.
3: Turn up for your LGBT friends. Say to them, hey, I know that you haven't asked me, but I know Pride is coming up in a month and can I come? See you. that is fascinating I
2: would never think of, yeah. of doing that
3: Because they won't necessarily ask you for fear of maybe you going oh awkward don't want to go so don't want to you know not say no it, you know they yeah. don't necessarily want to have the situation where they put you in a weird situation Remember yeah. that most LGBTQ plus people have become masters at avoiding awkward confrontation. And not asking for stuff maybe. So they're yeah. going to be the last people to put themselves in that situation. So you do the active ask. Yeah, that's really interesting. And if if they say to you, you know what, it's actually a really special day and it's a safe space for me and I think I just want to be around, you know, three or four other LGBTQ people that day, go, great, wonderful. If you feel different next year, I'll be there yeah. with bells on.
2: I don't think I have ever thought of Pride as being for me. If it doesn't sound too stupid, like I, Which I, it I, think, totally is. I think I would be nervous about asking in case it's just like not quite your place. You know, no, yeah. totally
3: is. Of course, it comes down to how your friends. Of course, yeah. Because it is. I think this is something that some people forget. Not necessarily at Pride, but more so in other LGBT safe spaces like bars and clubs. Is you know you'll have this isn't everybody, but you'll have maybe a group of young women come into that space on a kind of a drunken fun night out and they want to have a dance with some gay guys and make them their quote unquote gay best friends. I've seen this. I've witnessed this And and what they've done accidentally a lot of the time is hijacked a very, very treasured and important space and moment for these these people. And it's like, yes, we're all having fun here, but actually the people that are around you now have waited all week maybe, yeah. to come to a place where they feel like a majority, don't feel yeah. abnormal or othered. And, and this and is not this, like a gay
2: theme park yes, type thing. Exactly. Yeah.
3: This three-hour period where they've come to feel comfortable yeah. out of a week of feeling uncomfortable potentially, you've now taken that from them. So... That's not good. Yeah. I like
1: what you're talking about in terms of the taking up space though. It's there's a difference between showing up and taking up space. Yes. And I think that's a really important mm. line to tread and I think Yeah. by reaching out to a minority person and asking to show up, that is showing up rather than just going in and taking place yes. of.
2: And there's a fair bit of what you were saying, I am an ally, look at me do this thing now online. you know, it's fairly oh, easy to try and grasp those kudos rather than actually asking what would be helpful. Yes. Mm. So
3: you're not doing it for performative reasons. You you're doing it because you actually bloody care. <laughs> (laughs) And you love your friends. It's the right thing to do. Even if you don't have friends who are LGBTQ, which is questionable in itself, because they're (laughs) everywhere. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) you may not know you do, but you do. (laughs) The other thing I would say is, you know, if there's a, a key cause that's in the ether right now that's kind of bubbling away and needs help, feel like it actually is okay to get involved like Michael said, in a way where you're amplifying and uplifting queer voices and struggle without speaking for them. So, for example, in my situation as a sort of white passing, you know, guy, when the BLM stuff was really kicking off this year, I had to very consciously think about, well, what's my place in this fight on behalf of my friends who are people of colour? And it wasn't, go and look at this awful video of a black person being attacked. It, yeah, a lot of people thought that that them, was their right?
2: place. Yeah.
3: It's, no, it's OK. Yeah. So can I share as much stuff from their feeds as possible? You know, can we maybe give them a space on a podcast as a guest to just spout off and educate us? Um, yeah,
2: sharing their stuff was what I tried to do as well, because I did see a fair number of my fellow white people... Um, <laughs> my fellow white people. <laughs> Dear fellow white people, yeah. maybe it's time we stop making this about us for yeah. a bit. It's yeah. the
1: difference between amplification, isn't it? I think amplification is is allyship. Yeah. It doesn't take up space.
0: Yeah.
3: It promotes voices that aren't being heard. Actually, thinking about it now, even as a queer person who's been through you know loads of struggle and, and sort of come out the other side, even in my own community, when I'm thinking about putting a message out there, fighting for something... I will always try and think of a new, fresh angle mm. or approach because I, even though it's my community, I don't want to rehash, repeat a done conversation because I think it's, it's plagiarism. <laughs> start. It's, it's not your It's lazy. It's done. And it's better off to just share what that person said. That's great. Than just trying to go, oh no, now I need to say that Trying thing. to rebrand it as your yeah, a thing. Yeah, different font and a different <laughs> colour scheme. And look, look what I said, aren't I great? No, it's when I see something that really connects with me and makes me have goosebumps and go, oh yes, that. Mm. I sit with it, I digest it, I think about it for days if needs be. And I go, well, what's my version of that? And then put it out there. If I think it will add to the
2: conversation, If it's not adding to it, then what's the point? One thing we do like to talk or ask people is you've talked about good and bad ways to you know to go about helping, and your dad being a supreme example of the good. It doesn't have to be in the field of activism or any field actually. But are there other men that you specifically admire that you look on as great examples of how to do it? Me excluded. We always have to say excluding Michael. (laughs) (laughs) Michael
3: mentioned that you would ask this, and and on top of the list was dad. But we've already done it. Yeah, (laughs) Um, but I
1: think that's a really valid point to make, though, that he's shown that you can change. And he's shown that you can change through work and through kindness and love. And I think that's, we shouldn't negate him as a role model. Like, he's absolutely up there, 100%. I don't know a
3: better man mm. personally.
2: It's than a Wonderful my own thing father. for someone to
3: be able to say about their dad,
1: like yeah. not in a
2: blinkered way, but with that he's kind of journey just behind you.
3: Unbelievable superhero to me. Like, I just, and you only know 5% of mm. his story. And every time I speak to him about the stuff he's done, been through, I get a new gem. I call it a gem, but a lot of it's very painful stuff. And it's like, how are you even here? Yeah, yes. How are you al- like? How am I alive? How did you? E- all of these things he's gotten through. But I, I think that if I'm gonna, now I'm gonna have to think of in a way you don't have to think of from other men. Well,
2: your dad is a good enough answer, clearly. I, I mean, would, I would agree. Wonderful example. Um, but I think actually, you have to have like a oh, can I have one? <laughs> can I have one? Oh, yeah. You can have another one, yeah.
3: one. And I don't think this man gets enough love globally. It's a very Irish thing. There's a person called Senator David Norris. He's an older gentleman and he's just so smiley, happy and flamboyant. In 1993, with the help of Ireland's first female president, Mary Robinson, took Ireland, the country, to the European Court of Human Rights in a case called Norris versus Ireland. I remember this in fact. And it was to fight for a uh, decriminalization of same sex acts you know sex. sodomy everybody sodomy but in those days it was you know, basically yeah. it, it's not on paper you know being gay is illegal it's the act of Expressing. you know what gay people do but in yeah. my eyes that is yes. making
2: gayness illegal it's a bit harsh to say you can be gay but don't do anything about it ever. yeah exactly yeah. it's <laughs> like don't,
3: don't practice it yeah
2: yeah <laughs> um, think about it if you must he, yeah
3: in <laughs> in a room crying yeah, um, <laughs> not dark. telling anyone else yeah yeah so he was and is, in my eyes, kind of like the Irish Harvey Milk. And he doesn't get enough of an international kind of, woo, you rock. And I remember he actually recounted, you know, part of his story to me in person. And I just remembered looking into his eyes and thinking, my God, like you are such a precious human being full of history. My most fond memory of uh, David Norris was when Ireland had its same sex marriage vote and there was about 5,000 people at Dublin Castle in this big courtyard as we all waited for the vote to come in. There was a big screen and the world's press was on the back of a lorry. It was uh, CNN, BBC, Sky News, RTE, everything.
2: Like Eurovision, but a lot more riding on it, really. Yeah, yeah.
3: (laughs) And every time a tally came in from a different county, it would pop up on the screen, you know, Limerick and Kerry and Roscommon, and and, and we'd cheer. (laughs) And when the final... Count came in, hilariously, 69% voted yes. Oh, how (laughs) good. (laughs) I know, they (laughs) have to have planned it. it. Um, And David Norris, who's now quite frail and he had just battled cancer at the time, I think, he got up onto this lorry and he had no mic. He screams out into the audience and he goes, I think my voice will carry. <laughs> and everyone starts laughing and he goes, the message sent out to the world from this small independent republic is one of liberty and equality and freedom. Liberté, egalité. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the term? eternity? Yeah. And I just lost it. And it was like a Martin Luther King moment. I'm losing it listening to you about it. Oh, I've got yes. the shakes. And it was just so beautiful to... You, I know it was a great thing for me and my family and us as a country but I looked at this amazing old man elderly man and I just thought oh you did this like what a moment for you to mm. have taken a country to the European Court of Human Rights every your life was riding on it your name your good standing your job and you won and now look at what we have oh just I mean that is, I mean looking at
1: both him and, and I guess your dad as well if you were to be building a man like from complete scratch, mm. what are the three qualities that you think that every man needs? A strong jaw. <laughs> um, <no. laughs> right, you got two left. <laughs> well, we can do that through other means, you know, injectables
3: and, you know. Yeah. No, I would say, in, in all real, uh, I would say humanity. Mm-hmm. The ability to kind of see why, you know, the human race is a fragile, special thing that needs to be nurtured and loved and treated in a humane way. Mm sensitivity so the ability to not be overcome by societal pressures of toxic masculinity to really just sort of be okay with crying and mm. loving and caring and being gentle because i think that you know we have an issue with a lot of men being kind of stunted in that way and uh, not through any fault of their own football mainly is the yeah. fault. this is it. <laughs> all yeah. because
2: of football yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's terrible but when you were talking about that extraordinary moment with dave norris and the results coming up and everything, which I do remember watching on online, Like I felt this like overwhelming sense of what it must have felt like to have that victory and that braveness of like that. But, but a part of my brain was doing it as winning a football match. Yeah, like, yeah. I, part of the way I can access that intensive emotion is thinking about if my team ever won anything. And that does show you I've got quite a long way to go in, in, <laughs> in, in terms yeah. of empathy.
3: In our heads, when we're standing there, we were front row. It was not just, look what we won, now I can get married at home. Woohoo, everyone loves me. It was thinking about all of the people that have died. Yeah, fought for it, mm. given for their it, lives to in it. In Ireland and abroad. Yeah. And all and of, continue to. Yeah, all of the personal shame and self-hatred that I had been through and my you know friends had been through. And it was just like... I, I'm starting to think it is more important than sport. I, I yeah, don't say it lightly. You know, like the morning that the vote was being counted. So it was announced in late afternoon. Many, many people went to a specific park in inner city Dublin, Fairview Park, where a guy called Declan Flynn was beaten to death in the 80s Mm. in a homophobic attack. And people were going and laying flowers at a bench and kind of speaking to him. That's wonderful. And saying kind of, you know, today is for you. Mm. And that was in all of I, our minds. Intensely you know, moving. These,
0: yeah. these um, guys yeah.
3: didn't go to jail when they did it. You know, yeah. it was just like, that was the Ireland we lived in in the 80s, where it was okay to beat up a pofter because, well, of course you would. That's what is meant to happen. To now having... You know, a gay prime minister and same sex marriage rights is just beautiful. Yeah.
2: I have sort of interrupted you. You're
3: going to you're so name your, 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 and third, uh, your third man. Well, I haven't found yet. one yet. Oh, yeah. um, let me think. Let me think. A strong jaw does work. It does, <laughs> actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A strong jaw, why not? Because no, I think that <laughs> you're,
2: you're allowed one like that at least. <laughs> Am I okay? Does
3: that make me a bad person? <laughs> because I don't not, not like people not. who don't have a strong jaw, or <laughs>
2: no. it's just you know, yeah. you're not going around beating people up if they haven't got <laughs> no, them. no, no, no.
3: I mean, like, fair play to you, rock on with your soft chin. Although I guess those people are easier to beat up if you had to, <laughs> a but <soft>. oh <laughs> <my> chin. <God. laughs>
2: chinless wonder, as you know, Kim Woodburn would say. Um, I'm thinking so hard about what my jaw is like now, it's not something you often think about. <laughs> yeah. I think that's really good sensitivity, humanity. Good jaw, strong jaw, strong jaw. Not a good jaw. It needs to be yeah. strong. So like, uh, like well defined, like, like
3: chiseled square. Like if you can see, like it's the corner kind of, of it. it's not detached but somewhat sort of flaring outward from one's neck.
2: It's a shame we're only audio because for those of you listening, both of them are now trying it's to, like, to touch it, like, nee- It's like a The bottom you, of your Michael, you've got a really good jaw chin. Not currently. No, you do. Like, if I was to do this,
1: this would be great for an audio platform. But so again, like, for those you
2: listening, Michael is now sort of manipulating his jaw to show what it would look like in <laughs> yeah. an ideal world.
1: Basically, if someone like was like to, to clench their jaw, you yeah, would you see like two a...
2: Right, right. You've got a good jaw. Very nice. Ria just <laughs> does something with his jaw, which I found quite attractive. Oh, <laughs> hello. <laughs> uh, well, thank you very much, Ria. That was wonderful. Thank you for having me it on. It was great. Really interesting. Yeah. Really? Do We don't know how to end the podcast. We did not know how to start it. We don't know how to end it.
3: I know. Follow me on Instagram. Oh yeah. Riyad K. That's the sort of thing. (laughs) Shameless. I will ask you. Hang on.
2: Where can people find you?
3: (laughs) Where can people find you, Riyad? So you can find me on uh, Instagram. It's at Riyad K. Mm -hmm. And if you want to take a look at my book, it's on Amazon. And And what's it called? It's called Yeah, You're Gay, Now What? (laughs) A Gay
2: Boy's Guide to Life. Very good. Great ending. Well done, everyone. I reckon now one of us says, React Khalif, thanks very much. And then we do look do you want pretty to do it cool. It now? Yeah, I'll do it. Well, Riad Khalif, thanks very much. <laughs> Thank you.
3: Thanks, guys. Love
2: you. We're so good at podcasting.
1: <laughs> Thank you for listening to Mankind. You can find us at Mankind Podcast on Twitter and Instagram.
2: Oh, if you wanted, you could write us an email at Mankind at gmail.com.
1: Next week, we are joined by James McVeigh from The Vamps. People say, oh, going to the gym six times a week, that's healthy. You're prime fitness. But, like, you might physically feel that you're strong and able to lift a certain amount of dumbbells. But mentally, like, I was an absolute dickhead when I had 5% body fat and looked a certain way. Like, I, you know, I was always hungry. I was always snappy. My skin was awful. And I never felt satisfied.
2: See you next week. Bye. Bye. Don't worry too much about that thing that you're worried is going to work out. Yeah.